Section 18 of the Democracy of the Constitution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Fascio. The Democracy of the Constitution and Other Addresses and Essays by Henry Cabot Lodge. Diversions of a Convalescent. Part 2. In the Oxford Book of Verse, Shakespeare's songs are printed together. The convalescent knew them all very intimately, but it so happened that he had never read them one after another in unbroken succession, and the effect of doing so was a fresh impression of the limitless quality of Shakespeare's genius. To write a song of the most perfect beauty, when he happened to think that it would be well at that point to give Jack Wilson a chance to sing something, seems to have been as easy to him as it is to the lark to trill all day. So easy to him, and yet how rare and marvelous the art. Swinburne says in his drastic way that English songwriting, in the fine and true sense, ended with Herrick. It sounds like an extreme statement, and yet it is difficult to controvert it. Poems, lyrics of highest beauty and splendor, touching every note in the gamut of emotions, we have had since then, and in a rich abundance. But the lyrics, or the poems of the first rank, which are also songs which sing themselves and lose no jot of their perfection, are sufficiently uncommon since the early seventeenth century, when it seemed as if every poet and dramatist had the power, either at some great moment, or, like the master of them all at any moment, to sing when the fancy caught him. As the convalescent read and read again the Shakespearean songs one after another, he found himself wondering how any being of ordinary intelligence could think that the same hand wrote, quote, The world's a bubble, and the life of man less than a span, unquote. and then, quote, Hark, hark, the lark at heaven's gate sings. Unquote. Or if there be a faint doubt about the world, described as quote, Lord Virulum's elegant parody of a Greek epigram, it is conceivable that the man who wrote, quote, That time of year thou mayst in me behold, When yellow leaves, or none, or few do hang, Upon those boughs which shake against the cold, Bare ruined choirs, where late the sweet birds sang, unquote. Who gave us one of Matthew Arnold's great touchstones of poetry, quote, Absent thee from felicity a while, unquote could also have been guilty of such lines as, quote, O sing a new song to our God above, avoid profane ones, tis for holy choir, unquote. which are far below Addison's, quote, spacious firmament on high, unquote. and by no means up to the level of Dr. Watts. Internal evidence is notoriously untrustworthy. Yet it is beyond belief that the same man could have written all these three poems or sets of verses. One can only repeat in despair the saying of Henry Labouchere, quote, I am perfectly willing to admit that Bacon wrote Shakespeare's plays, if they would only tell me who wrote the works of Bacon. Unquote. But as the reader closed the book, he reflected that after all it was less surprising that Shakespeare should have written all these songs, scattered with prodigal hand here and there throughout the plays, than the fact that all the dramatists of that day could each and all apparently write a quite perfect song of great lyrical beauty at least once if they set themselves to do it. The convalescent ran over to himself the few he could easily call to mind, 
there was Webster, of whom nothing is known, but who wrote two beautiful tragedies which are still read, and which are touches worthy of the master. His dark and sinister genius, as we see it displayed in the Duchess of Malfi and Vittoria Corombona, seems as unfitted as possible for lyric poetry. And yet when the mood was on him he wrote the famous song, sad as one might expect from him, but full of tender feeling, which is called a land dirge, and which begins, quote, Call for the robin redbreast and the wren, unquote. Then the convalescent thought of Haywood, a second-rate man, his plays read only by students of the Elizabethan literature, and yet Haywood could write, quote, Pack clouds away and welcome day, with night we banish sorrow, unquote. a song worthy of a place in the Shakespearean group. The next that came to mind was Shirley, latest of the Elizabethan and Jacobin dramatists. His plays are not now read at all. It may be doubted if even the name of any one of them is remembered except by students of literature. Yet every one knows the lines, which are a familiar quotation. Quote, Only the actions of the just smell sweet and blossom in their dust. Unquote. And these are by no means the best lines in a noble poem. In the quiet room the convalescent recalled gradually the whole of the lyric. Take as an example of its quality the opening lines of the last stanza. Quote, the garlands wither on your brow, then boast no more your mighty deeds. Upon death's purple altar now, see where the victor victim bleeds. Unquote. There is the splendor of the great epoch in these lines, and here we find it in this weak and forgotten playwright, the last of the great succession. Then well beyond the end of the mighty line, Memory declared that we could find an example of the great tradition still lingering in a man whose name is well known on account of a dim connection with Shakespeare, whose plays are all unread, who flourished in the years of decadence, Sir William Devenant, and yet even he could write a song worthy of the spacious days. Quote, the lark now leaves his watery nest, and climbing shakes his dewy wings, he takes this window for the east, and to implore your light he sings. Awake, awake, the morn will never rise till she can dress her beauty at your eyes. Unquote. How the lines sing themselves! There rings in them the echo of the glorious days, of the days when the audiences at the theatre or the globe heard the boy sing to Mariana in the moated grange. Quote, Take, oh, take those lips away, that so sweetly were forsworn, and those eyes, the break of day, lights that do mislead the morn. But my kisses bring again, bring again, seals of love, but sealed in vain, sealed in vain. Unquote. The convalescent, of course, could not solve the problem. Yet it was very pleasant to lie in the stillness and watch the gray mists and wonder how these poets and dramatists managed to write such songs in those days long past, and why the art seemed to have been lost, and get no answer to the questioning, but the sound of the musical lines softly chiming as they ran along the chords of memory. From the early poets one went easily on, when once started, to the much-loved poets of later days, beginning with the immortal group at the beginning of the nineteenth century. The songs of Shakespeare led naturally to the plays, not at first to the great tragedies, but to the comedies, where one is borne away into another world which never existed anywhere, 
and yet exists always and everywhere, a world filled with romance, with light and life and humor, broken here and there by deep notes of tragedy, full of beautiful poetry, and peopled with characters which can never grow old, because they are as eternal as humanity, with no touch of the fleeting fashion of a day about them. The convalescent had loved them long and truly, but it seemed to him that he had never known them so well before, never realized so fully what delightful companions they were, so much more real than any historical figures of men and women who had actually lived and wrought out their lives upon the earth to which long since they had returned. The physical ability to read indefinitely, by the hour together, came back rapidly, and with it the power of reading new books appeared. They could not take the place of those which had come first, of the poetry and imaginings among which memory and thought had so happily roamed and wandered. But these new books began to share the hours with the old. There was no poetry among them. The convalescent had expected no novels, for, although the new novels are countless, they suggest generally only Roger's rule, quote, when I hear of a new book, I take down an old one, unquote. Of course, the endless swarms, which, like flights of brown-tailed moths upon a wall, flutter down in their myriads upon the bookstalls clad in gay paper covers, the chief incitement to their sale, were out of the question. Even in robust strength the mind turns from them as it does instinctively from those of the hundred thousand copies sold, which are usually as quickly and irretrievably forgotten within the next year as Pomfret's choice, which sold its innumerable editions in the eighteenth century. Still more emphatically did the mind, sensitive and longing for a happy content, turn from the morbid, the sordid, and above all from the solemnly moral novels with a purpose to which just now a passing notoriety is so readily accorded. Nevertheless, from this unpromising field, unpromising perhaps owing to the reader's distaste for it, there came quite unexpectedly some stories by one author which not only amused, but which brought with them the sense of new characters, created characters, with whom it was a pleasure to live for the brief hour while one read their adventures. When Byron, in the midst of the pleasant fooling and jesting of love's labors lost, says, quote, To move wild laughter in the throat of death, it cannot be, it is impossible. Mirth cannot move a soul in agony, unquote. We suddenly hear the deep tragic note which was one day to become familiar to the world in Lear and Othello. But the task imposed by Rosalind does not go quite so far as Byron's interpretation would make it. She tells him that it must be his part, quote, to enforce the pained impotent to smile. Unquote. It is a difficult feat, but it is not impossible, and the words of this, the earliest, probably of Shakespeare's charming women, came freshly to his mind when the convalescent found himself laughing out loud as he read, quite alone, George Birmingham's story of Spanish gold. Merely as a story, it has the romantic charm. The search for buried treasure always has an unfailing fascination, and the scene of the book is laid most fittingly in a remote, unfrequented island among a people isolated from the world, not yet drilled into uniformity by civilization, and at once picturesque, humorous, and pathetic. Upon this stage the characters appear, all are real people, all in their degree entertaining and interesting. But there is one, who stands out as the hero, who is a genuine creation, so natural, so delightful, that we welcome him to that goodly company of friends whom we owe to human imagination, 
from whom we cannot be parted, and who are more really living than those who have actually walked the patient earth. John Joseph Meldon is a being very much alive. To one very grateful reader, under adverse circumstances, he came as a joy, bringing laughter with him and leaving a strong feeling of personal affection behind him. He is again the hero in the Major's niece, where he has all the fascination which he possesses in Spanish gold, although the former story has not the romantic attraction of the adventures in search of treasure to be found in the tale born of the Armada tradition. Dr. O'Grady, in General John Regan and Dr. Witty, in the book that bears his name, are variants of the Meldon type, but neither is quite equal to the original, although both are delightful persons. In the red hand of Ulster, beneath the easy humor and the kindly satire, runs a deeper purpose. In the picture of the resolved Ulstermen with their great fighting traditions, of their inability to resist the forces of empire, if really employed against them, and of the vacillations of the ministry, and their unwillingness to employ their equally reluctant army and navy, the truth of the Ulster situation seems to be very sharply depicted. But the predominant feeling in the mind of one solitary reader was that of gratitude to Canon Hannay for bestowing upon him the acquaintance, the friendship, and the conversation of J. J. Meldon. In one respect it is sad to confess this attractive person proved a traitor, for the tales of his exploits opened the door to other new books which were welcomed by the regained power to read without limit. And the stories of real men who had lived and toiled and vanished came in to share the hours which the poets and the dramatists had for many days monopolized. Instead of playing unfettered in the fields of memory and imagination, the thoughts came back to the world of facts and knowledge. The dream light in which the convalescent had been living so contentedly gave way to the daylight. The cares which infest the day, and the habitual interests and pursuits began to show themselves, and with insistent voices demanded a surcease of the neglect from which they had suffered, and a renewal of the attention which they were wont to command. They would not be denied, these old occupations and duties, and although there were still many tracts of time which went to books, new and old, to meditation on things which were of no practical use, and therefore peculiarly delightful, they asserted their mastery more and more, until at last it was complete. After this there were no more roamings without plan or purpose in pleasant realms of memory and fancy, and the diversions of the convalescent, which had made him happy during so many motionless hours, came to an end. End of Section 18 End of the Democracy of the Constitution and Other Addresses and Essays by Henry Cabot Lodge